morning, everybody. How are we going? Wonderful, wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, and, and particularly, it's a, it's a great honor to follow somebody like uh, Vivian. And I had no idea what you had to say, but I realized that many things that you presented earlier actually link and resonate to what I have to say. Particularly, your, your important notions about understanding the difference between causal relationship of events and what I'm going to talk about here is a correlational relationship that often bothers. So, um, my first question is that this is still early in the morning for me. Do you want me to speak English or Finnish to you? <laughs> uh, there are some people who say it does, doesn't really make too much difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I'm going to talk about this uh, small data idea and, and this presentation, just like in Vivian's case, the, this is linked to the workshops that we're going to have later. So, um, I'm going to speak about ideas uh, more this morning and then work on practical things in a, uh, in a workshop. If there's anybody here who finds anything in this uh, slide text here or afternoon interesting that you want to kind of like go back and take another look, I always post my presentations on my website uh, that is very easy to find. There is only one person with my name in the world. So if you Google me, you cannot, you cannot get lost. Um, or if you're in the social media, I'm going to tweet this also this afternoon on both of these packages so that we can have all the material uh, with you. Okay, so I'm going to be talk talking about this idea of small data a little bit, but let me say a couple of things about the, um, where I actually come from uh, here. A few months ago, exactly four months ago, uh, we made a big move with my family, uh, my wife and, and two young boys. We, Back our things in the uh, uh, city of Helsinki in Finland and moved to live in Sydney. And this is not just a visiting thing, we are here forever, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so we came for, for a while. And I, you know, people often wonder what makes somebody uh, a family to leave the happiest country in the world and the place where there's the best education system in the world and you name it, it's, it's all there. Why anybody would like to leave a place like this? Well, the one thing is the climate, of course. <laughs> that being, being in Helsinki in November is not a nice thing at all. So it was easy. But seriously speaking, the opportunity to work here um, in Sydney, the, the best university in Australia called University of New South Wales, with somebody, somebody like Adrian Piccoli, who was a minister for education for many years. And, and so we, we created this new institute called uh, the Konsky Institute for Education. David Konsky himself was very polite and gentle to give his name uh, to this institute. And what, what we're trying to do is basically fix the inequity here in Australia. I, I think is the biggest thing, if you ask anybody from who comes from outside and has been following and, and uh, studying and observing schools and education in Australia, if you ask me that what is the big challenge in Australia, I would say that it's a widespread inequality and inequity in your system. At the same time, however, there are people back home who have been very eager to um, hear from me what, what do I think about the school system and education system overall here in Australia. My response is always the same. I say that Australia has probably the best education system in, in the world, the world-class system when it comes to schools, really wonderful stuff. Then there's a pause, 
And then I co continued by saying, for some kids. But not for all. And that's, that's, that's a challenge here. And I, said, I think it's very important for each of you to understand that the problem is not to have quality schools and quality instruction and quality leadership here. The challenge is that it's a very unevenly distributed across this vast country called Australia. And that's what we try to do. So when, when, when there was an opportunity to join people working on this, and we understand that University of New South Wales or Gonski Institute alone cannot do too much, but we can, we can call and invite a movement of people, anybody who wants to join us and feel the same way, to work on this very, very important challenge. My presentation is not about that, actually. But if you want to have a conversation um, in the workshop where we have more time, I'm very happy to speak more about how small data, data in, in general, can help us to better understand what we need to do and also solve um, some of the some of the problems. But that's why we are here, and I'm really looking forward to our time here. We have a permanent resident visa, so you cannot get us out from Australia, <laughs> even if you wanted to at some point. <laughs> And uh, we have two little boys with us, and uh, this is the uh, this is our older son. And um, you know, the other thing that anybody who has own children in the school system can do, especially somebody like me, you know, I'm, I have a really unique opportunity now to not only to study the world class education and school system here in Australia, but also do it as a parent as a father of two sons who go to school. You know what I'm talking about? It's a school looks very different when you look, look at the things through your own children. And so this is what, what I'm doing as well. And as um, any serious academic scholar, right, Vivian, would do is to, in an opportunity like this, to run a social experiment using my own children <laughs> <laughs> by sending them to a public school in Sydney, and then I write a paper out of it, right? <laughs> But this is, this is the older one, his name is Otto. Otto is a very famous guy because he, he was in a Sydney Morning Herald last week uh, interviewed about his experience of this and that. And I'm showing this picture because he, here he's standing with his new school principal in, in, a, in a public school, primary school in Sydney. He's a year one student. And uh, he was very keen to not only to go to school, but when he learned that in Australia people wear uniforms. So he was really excited about having this new uniform and look at this picture, there's something that doesn't really fit into the picture and you can probably also recognize that he is really my son. <laughs> Just look at my shoes, yeah? So he, we couldn't find the black shoes that is a kind of a part of the uniform in that school. Uh, so I said, just put your red shoes on, it's fine, and uh, we'll find the black shoes a little bit later. Now, now he has black shoes. But it took about three hours in the first day of his school when everybody knew his name and said, yeah, yeah, you know, the author is the boy with the red shoes. <laughs> but he's really enjoying his time, and uh, uh, it's, it's a wonderful school. There are many things that this school does are very different than that he did back home. Uh, but, you know, that's also a very interesting thing for, for us parents to think about, you know, why these schools are doing different things, why the school day is so much longer here in Australia than it was for him before he came here, why the backpack is so much bigger and heavier here for a six-year-old that he had uh, back home, and why the backpack here must have a lunchbox that no child in Finland never carries with them uh, because the lunch is provided by the school, and many other things. Why there's so many parents in the school every time, and there's no parents in school in Finland. Um, 
and why there are so many parents who don't seem to quite trust what the school does and they behave very rudely against principals, right? That would never happen in Finland because principals are treated like medical leading doctors or architects or, or lawyers and others uh, where people have a huge respect. But so, so, so there are many, many things different here that is really exciting to to uh, try to understand how things go. But that's, uh, that's where we... Um, that's where we start. So, let's start with this one. And I'm really happy that Vivian already spoke about mathematics and, um, and literacy. I don't know if you referred to when you said several times that I, I don't understand, I, have, I don't have mathematical knowledge, whether you refer to yourself or leaders in general. <laughs> okay, because now you have you, you have you have a unique opportunity now to test how good each of you are in mathematics. Okay, because you know this this is this is one of those things that when I was a, I was a math teacher for many years in, in middle school and high school, and and every year when I had a new group of kids, the same thing happened. But before I did any mathematics, before we, before I said anything. There were always kids there in the classroom who put their hands up and said, the teacher, I'm not good in mathematics. And then there were those who said that, I hate mathematics. Okay? And I said, how can you say that we haven't done anything yet? <laughs> so where do you think those things come from? Well, there may be a mother there who says that, listen, I am not a math person, so don't expect too much of yourself. Or there may be a father who says that, just look at me. All these things that I have created, and I was very bad in mathematics in school. Or there may be some other things. But you know, I, didn't, I had no understanding why kids are saying things like this. Maybe it goes back to these theories of action, of beliefs that Vivian was talking about. I'm going to get back to this question later on. But now is your time to show me how good you really are in mathematics. Raise your hand if you have ever been or you currently are teaching mathematics in school. I look around, almost all of you. So this must be a piece of cake for everybody. Because, you know, when I came to Australia, one thing I learned that you guys, you must love standardized testing, right? <laughs> no? Did, did I miss the meeting? Why, why do you test so kids all the time, then, if you don't like it? Okay? Anyway, I didn't know that, but now I'm not going to know. I can think again. But, so that's why I have this test for you because I thought that everybody likes testing. So this is a very simple test. It's, it's a kind of comprehensive uh, test to check your competencies and, and mathematical literacy skills. Okay? And I can do it in half a minute, believe me or not, right? The only thing I need to, to have from you is that you will join me, everybody, every single one here in the room. Okay? So you have to participate actively okay? and truly and as well as you can, right? Because what you're going to see is going to be a very simple thing. Here on this, these two screens, they are identical. So the same thing happening on both sides. Okay? So what you need to do is that when you see a number appearing here, you just shout it out as loudly as you can. Do you have a rugby team here in, in Canada? Yeah. You do? Okay? So if you go to the rugby game, and you are just a little bit behind the storm of, of the roosters, any, any, any team, okay? And your team is begging you that please give us your voice and your loud kind of support. That's exactly what I'm expecting from you all, all of you here, right? So when you see a number here, just shout it out, okay? 
That's easy. Okay? That's, a, that's a year one task. When you see another number appearing there, what you need to do is add that number to what you said previously. Okay? That's about year three task. Okay? And now it gets a little bit more complicated. When you see a third number, add that number to the previous sum. Are you with me? Are you sure? Okay, do you think you can do this? Yeah, you can, of course, okay. And so on, and about lunchtime we should be done. All right? Are you ready? So the only thing you need to do is to look at the screens, shout it out as, you, as loud as you can, and, and, and follow me. So let's, um, let's start right now, okay. One, two, three, let's go. Your team is losing. I mean, loudly, people. You can do much better than this. You want to try again? I don't believe you. People say, when you come to Canberra, people are loud and they participate. They support you, right? Okay, let's try again and now loudly. Everybody, join me. One, two, three, now. Louder. You just go with the flow, with the stream, right? Okay? You don't stop and think. Okay? And then there are many people. There are some people here in the room who said, I was just about to say 4,100 when I heard these voices around me saying something. And my brain very quickly switched to correct answer very simple. Not 5,000. So, of course, the, my point here is not just a mathematical thing. But this is an education reform exercise. You know, that's why many of the reforms, probably most of the educational reforms and good intentions that we see around the world fail because people like you, the principals and teachers and kids, don't have enough time to really understand what was going on. This is what was convenience point as well. Uh, the implementation is the, the, the more complex thing. And if we just go and you know, follow what everybody else is doing, especially, you know, Australia has been very good at following bad ideas from other countries, okay? Rather than stop and say, you know, does this make any sense? Is this good for me? What is the evidence about this? 
So that's why it's a, it's a very important thing in leadership and in education reform policy work to stop and think what we do. Finland is a very different place. And, and some of the, the uh, Nordic countries are very different places because we have this kind of patience to say, okay, so, so the other countries are doing this, but this is really something that is good for our kids. So that's, that's is the important, uh, important thing here. So now it's very important when we are moving further in this time, when we, you, you will be exposed and introduced many new ideas and promises about you know, improving the schools and the system by this and that that we have time to time to you know consider and use our professional wisdom. You know, one of those things that you are we all have been um, discussing or hearing is this uh, everybody knows pizza, right? Yeah, it's not me, it's pizza puzzle. It's, it's almost the same. You know, sometimes I'm introduced in a conference it's like this as pizza salver. It's not a good idea. I can tell you that. But you know this this thing that you, is it the OECD pizza that is you know, measuring countries and comparing them every three years, is it really helpful? Is this data and information that, that something that we can use that helps us to do better here in Australia or in Canberra or in your schools? Uh, it's a very important, um, important question we have. So, how do we improve these results if you have a business like this? Well, there are many people here who say that we should not even think about it like this. But you had a prime minister a few years ago, or we had, I was not here. Yes, but you were. Who had a, the government plan was to bring Australia to the top five in the OECD PISA by 2021. That is two years from now. Okay. But you know, again, you know, if you go and look at the data, there's a huge amount of information there, and you may call it the big data, or at least it's a huge amount of data. There's all kinds of conclusions that you can get to answer this question if you are in the business of trying to improve visa results. Maybe a prime minister should have taken a closer look at this. This is one of those things that you can see. Just take the two variables there in this data, right? One is the visa results, and the other one is the how much ice cream people eat in different countries. Uh, so you will see there, this is Finland and Australia. Australia is actually number one in, in, in ice, ice cream in the world. And statistics, you know, if you ask your computer to do the analysis of this data, you will see that there is actually fairly clear correlation <laughs> between ice cream consumption and pizza results. So, you know, the easiest thing to make sure that your kids are doing good in pizza is to buy ice cream machines in your schools and make it compulsory to have at least two cones of ice cream every day, right on side. And in a couple of years' time, you will see there are also. At least, you know, this is what the evidence says, right? And this is exactly where we get to this point that we heard earlier this morning that, you know, do we really understand that this, this is a causal relationship or directional link between these two variables or maybe there's something else? That is the kind of handicap that comes with the, this huge amount of data that there is. And of course, you know, this is, a, this is a funny thing when you have the ice cream consumption, but we can easily uh, you know, replace this with almost any educational variable there. That makes a lot of sense, but it's still not a causational so we cannot say that by doing this, the pizza results or achievement uh, or performance will improve. So we need to be very, very mindful and, and careful with this. So big data. Now tell me this. I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor just for half a minute. And consider this example. That on Monday you go back to your school, right? 
okay? And there's somebody there who is a young student, boy or girl, let's say a 12-year-old or 10-year-old, and she or he comes to you, of course, you'll see and say that, I heard that you went to this wonderful conference last week in Canberra, and there was somebody talking about big data. And I have heard about this big data thing in, uh, in the news and, and radio and TV, but I, I don't quite know what it means. Could you explain me what it is? So what, what would your response be to a 10-year-old or 12-year-old who really wants to understand what big data means? Okay, go. I'll give you half a minute just to try a very quick response. If you say, I have no idea, that's a good response as well. You know, if you, if you really want to have a definition for big data, there are many things in, uh, 
available in the literature or the internet to just go there. But it normally includes this idea of having a huge amount of data information bits that requires a computer to, to store it and analyze and handle and manage it. Okay, so that's that's one of those things. So, but it's, it's very important that we have a we have a good enough understanding about what we are talking about because the big data comes with so many different forms. It's already part of our lives, and some people say that we can't anymore live um, normally without somehow big data being being used for that. And in education, of course, the thing is that it's going to be much bigger, much stronger uh, player in our work uh, later on. Couple of terms that you know, if you if you go and read more about the data science, that would be if your school principal here this morning. This is something that you have to do sooner rather than later. It's a good idea to have a kind of a basic knowledge and kind of an understanding about the the data science today. What are the terms and ideas and issues that people are talking about? Don't think that this is not going to be part of my work. I'm, I'm a school leader and I don't need to worry about those things. If you come, when you come to my workshop, I'm going to put you in a situation where you have to decide, you have to find a kind of argument or narrative based on what you think the big data can do for you. So, so data mining is something uh, often used as a, as a kind of a metaphoric thing that you basically dig into this uh, huge uh, stories of information and data and see, try to see some of the correlations. Like the ice cream consumption and pizza results is one thing. But this is what the computers are very good at. They find you very easily these correlations of, hey, you know, this is, this is, this is what I found. <coughs> then there are things like learning analytics. This is something that comes very close to what we do in the schools now. Higher education around the world is increasingly built around the learning analytics. In other words, the computers are assessing and collecting information about learners and then designing what type of curriculum and learning profiles and programs they should have. Then we have the artificial intelligence. How would you define artificial intelligence? Well, I'm not going to go any deeper in this, but just check what, what, what do you think it is? Again, what, how, would you, how would you respond to a 10 year old what artificial intelligence is? Think about it. Well, you know, one, one way to say that it's, that it's, it's about you know, trying to trying to uh, analyze and explore what machines can do, like like people, you know, our brain and our thinking. Okay. So these are these are all the things that should be and will be the basic concepts of any school leader, educational leader, tomorrow, and not just the five years from now. But it will be. We have to be able to have a conversation and understand how these things work. Now, you know, my, my, my question here is that if the artificial intelligence to, today is able to compose music, you know, much of the music, modern music in here, particularly pop music, uh, nowadays is composed by machines. It's not human. The people don't sit with their pens and papers anymore and compose songs. It's done by, by machines. The interesting thing is that the artificial intelligence is able to produce scientific journal articles. It's already three, four years ago when the first journal articles in the scientific journals were created by, by smart machines. There's no human touch there. Uh, many of the news nowadays are created by, by machines, not human beings. That's, that's why many of the lawyers in the future will lose their jobs because 
machines are much, much better to do this. So, you know, if this is all true, then of course, you know, the question that we have to raise is that, you know, how about teachers? So could it happen that one day we don't need a teacher anymore? That a robot or a machine can do the same thing and do, can do the same thing much faster. You know, they don't, machines, robots don't complain. They don't say that I'm tired, I want to go home. Or they don't prepare the unions. They just teach, they just do their job. Do you think it's going to happen? Some people say no, some people say maybe, and then some people say it's, it's certainly will. Uh, will be Just take a look at this. I'll give you one example. You know, this is a this is this is a kind of painter that everybody recognizes, right? So you see that these these paintings are Van Gogh paintings, except one of them. One of these works was done has has never seen Van Gogh's hand or brush. It was painted by a, a an algorithm. The algorithm is actually called Vincent. Okay. And you can go and check out, you know, how the how the machine does this. But which one of these do you think was painted by a machine? Why do you say C? You know the other two. Maybe the C is the Van Gogh's secret painting that was found uh, just a few years ago. It's, you know, if you don't know, if you don't know, even if you know art. You can, you can show this to the, somebody who is good in art. If you're an expert in Bachhoff, of course, you can, you can say that. You know, I, I know some of those, but from the others. But, you know, it, it is C. Yeah. But it's absolutely impossible to say which one of them, if you don't know. Okay? And again, the same thing, that if the machine can paint like Bachhoff, why not to teach like a teacher? And you know what? The bad news is that it's happening already. You know, there are classrooms, not just the personalized learning classrooms where kids are doing things using their own computers, but there, there are classrooms now where there is actually a smart machine, a robot, that can identify the students, they can talk to the students by their name, can ask questions, can recognize emotions, and many other things. Okay, so what do you think about that? When we come to the workshop in the afternoon, we're going to work more on those things. What would be the response that we should and could have to this thing? Whether you like it or not, there's something we need to be able to do. Are you right, feeling all right, or are you depressed? <laughs> I see that some of you are like really afraid, saying maybe, maybe I should leave before the, uh, before this all this ends, or somebody comes and eats my job, <laughs> takes my parking place away from the school. So, so you know, this is the, this is really the question. The can the big data make um, schools and education smart? I'm going to show you a little clip here. You know, this was a World Economic Forum that is a kind of a club of very wealthy nations and business leaders meets every day, uh, every, sorry, every year in, uh, in uh, Switzerland. So they are investing more and more now in education thinking and particularly the future. So they put together this half a minute thing about machines that are going to replace teaching. There was a, there was a, uh, there was a speech by the, one of the, uh, one of the uh, provosts of the British universities last September, who was making the same, same kind of estimate that by 2030, 
you know, a big part of the, the learning, study and learning, and the higher education institutions will be done led by robots, for instance. The professors like Vivian and myself, we will be redundant. And, and we will probably do more of these things here to, you know, how, how, how this, but take a look at this, uh, how, the, uh, how the people see this uh, go. This has not been a very good day. After Vivian's great presentation, everything has been just downhill. I didn't know the, the answer to this basic mathematical arithmetic thing. And then this guy comes in, he's going to say that you know, I'm going to lose my job. But you know, it doesn't have to be this way because there is a solution to this. And the solution comes with the small data. You don't need to call it small data. But I'm going to tell, explain you a little bit what I think about this. And this is the powerful response that we can have with us and what has been happening in our profession, I mean the teaching profession and the leadership profession in schools during the last 20 years, is that our space to have this professional conversation about pedagogy, about teaching and learning, um, about children, uh, has been coming narrow and narrow. Okay? And what we need to do now is to reclaim this back, and particularly reclaim back the professional wisdom that we can collectively cultivate. It doesn't happen with the big data. You know, what the big data is likely to do is to take away even more of that space. Okay? If you look at their solutions, and we're going to take a look at one school where the big data is really the algorithms are running the thing, the role of the teacher and the principal is basic, basically to look at the, the dashboard and then say that you know, these kids stay into this type of stuff and for the other kids. We're going to do this. So it's basically controlling, making sure that the kids are doing what the machine is asking them to do. Okay? Again, it doesn't have to be, be this way, but it will if we just put our hands up and say, that, okay, so whatever you offer, I try to adapt to this. We have, now we have to be much more active. And you guys, your principals, your leaders, your voice has to be much louder from now on about these things than it has to be. Let me tell you this. You cannot just sit quietly in your schools and you know, accept these ideas as, as if they were given by somebody. Principal's voice, a leadership voice in schools is absolutely critical. Collectively, through your as wonderful associations here, and individually, as you as a professionals. And that's exactly what the small data is all about. 
Now, raise your hand up if you have no idea, no clue, or very little clue what small data is. So you know, you, you know more about small data than this data. So what is small data? I can tell you one thing. Small data is not just a little bit less of big data. <laughs> like I often hear people say, maybe it's just that if you have a little bit less data and information, it's, a, it's a, like a small, some people call it a little data. But you know, small data, as you know, if you read anything about this, small data is a, is a different mindset, it's a different paradigm to what we know and what we can rely on. So let me speak a little bit about this, give you one example so that we can, we can think about what this, uh, uh, this is. You know, again, you know, this is a kind of a concept that has not been within, within education for too long. Um, the, the small data started to emerge in education and leadership conversation at the same time when the kind of a space and role of big data and algorithms and learning analytics began to kind of take hold on what we do, okay? So there were people who were asking that, but what, what are the things that the big data is not very good at? And this is exactly the question we have to ask. You know, what are the things that the, the uh, uh, you know, these learning machines and artificial intelligence is not very good at? And the computers are not yet very good at, you know, identifying these tiny little meaningless things that are called the tiny little clues here that don't mean anything, except if you're a principal or educator, teacher, you can see those things in your school or in your classroom and you understand that this has something to do with these things that are happening in my school. But for the computer, or somebody who's a non-educator, it may mean nothing, okay? So, you know, this small data story is very interesting because there's a, there's a Danish guy called Martin Lindstrom, I'm gonna show you him in a moment, who was a huge fan of Lego. You know Lego, Lego bricks? How many of you have played with Lego bricks? Almost everybody. Yeah. I'm going to the Lego conference on Sunday again um, in Denmark. It's so one, one of those wonderful occasions to really enjoy the play and you know crazy creative people around the world hanging around for three days and you know thinking about the power of this type of thing. Anyway, Martin was one of those fans of Lego. Uh, Lego thing when he was a boy, child, he's a Danish guy, and now he's uh, advising and consulting big companies around the world. And you know, there's an interesting thing that he, he tells, that when, when the, the personal computers and the games, computer games, came to the lives of teenagers in the 1990s, and there was a music TV, you know, came with this very fast rhythm kind of a stuff, there were some people who said that maybe in the future the kids don't have this patience anymore, that they're gonna have stuff that they can fill very quickly. Okay, and you know, Lego was based on this idea of having these tiny little bricks it takes a long time to, to build these big things. And you know, there was consulting companies like Pricewaterhouse, Cooper, and, and um, McKinsey and others who were advising Lego that you had to change your business strategy accordingly, okay? So make sure that you have products in the 2000s that will meet these needs and, and kind of a new uh, nature of the millennials. You cannot sit down and just you know, focus and concentrate on certain things. That's exactly what Lego did. And that was exactly what almost drove Lego out of business 15 years ago. Because young people are not like that. Not at all. Actually, they are the opposite. You know, young people are, even little kids, they are look, looking for a challenge. 
that is a complicated, complex thing that only they can do, and then they can show it to their friends and say that, you know, this is what I was able to do. So they hired Martin when the label was almost out of the business to help. Because Martin was, you know, Martin was really the one who really understood the label thing. And he was working on this small data idea that is about, you know, looking for tiny little clues that can reveal the big trends, big secrets. And, and Martin's way of working with small data was, and still is, that he goes to people's lives. He comes to your living room, not to your bedroom, but living room. And he, he went to the children's rooms just to see, you know, what is there, what these kids do. And not necessarily interviewing them, but just, you know, looking around. He was looking for these tiny little clues. And guess what? In Germany, he says, he went to the, the room of the 11-year-old boy and he found a sneaker that is completely torn out, cold and shoe. And he started to look at the sneaker and said, but what do you do with this one? It's completely destroyed. And he said, that's the most valuable thing I have in this room. Because anybody in my circles, the boy said, would immediately see that when I wear these sneakers, that I'm a first-class skateboarder. And that's what led Martin to go back to Lego and say that, you know, the, what you need to do is to reverse your business strategy completely and go to the complex. And create something that kids can show that, you know, this is what I was able to create. That, that's exactly what Lego did. And now it's a leading toy business in the world. 20% of all the toys here in Australia are sold by them. Okay? It's an unbelievable turnaround. And it's not only Martin's advice, of course, but he kind of realized this thing and the method of how he did this is amazing story. Let's, now, okay, let's move back to the school, education. This is exactly what we need here. You know, small data is something that we use people like you and your colleagues to help you to see what's going on in the school. And just like Vivian was talking, earlier, you know, the key for us is to understand, let's make a distinction between correlation and causation, okay? And that's what we need to do. So let me show you a couple of things here. So, so big data, you know, this is what, if you, if you explore big data a little bit further, you, you know, you will find these things very quickly, and this is what we spoke about. Big data is about big trends. It's trying to kind of identify big issues and big, uh, uh, Trends is about machines, it's about algorithms and analytics. It's all about correlations. Uh, big data can, cannot, cannot answer the question why something works or why something doesn't work. It's about correlations and that's it. And the rest is your responsibility to make sense out of that. And it's about predicting the future. Okay? Now, did you notice that if you have, if you live in a big city like Sydney, okay, and you have a travel, you have an Oppo car, the travel car, you have your smartphone, and you have your debit card. Three things. And you use those things like a regular. It's not only that the, there's somebody out there who can fairly accurately tell, kind of describe what you do, what type of person you are. But this algorithm can fairly reliably predict what you're going to do next week, what you're going to do next month and next year, but just based on these three pieces of information that all of us leave behind on the right? So this is what the big data does. Again, going back to the school, it does exactly the same things. 
It looks, looks at what the kids do, how they behave, when they smile, how they move, what their body temperature is, and it's able to predict certain things with a huge amount of data about the similar types of behaviors that yours or this kid. Now, small data is different. So it's, that's why I use it in this kind of a balanced, coherent uh, image here. That is about these tiny little clues. It's about humans. It's about us, you know, collecting this data and using it and making sense out of that. Okay, most of the time, it's about collective professional wisdom. This is what makes small data alive. Conversation. Okay, when we talk about these things that we see with one another. Okay, and it's all about conversations. It's about answering questions of what works and what happens if. This is, what, this is the power of small data, really. And it's about making sense of the present. Again, this is something that Vivian was talking about um, in, uh, earlier in the morning. Do we really understand what's happening right now? That's why we need small data. If you, if you let it go with a big data, this, um, this understanding will begin uh, really hard. Are you with me now so far? Are you enjoying yourselves? A little bit? Okay. Yes much fun to come still. <laughs> okay, I'm going to show you how Martin Elizabeth looks like, because he, uh, what he looks like, because he, he's a guy who has been doing a lot of work and a lot of evidence. If you are interested in small data, read his book called Small Data. And he has a lot of stories about how he, how he has, uh, is using small data. But let's see what Martin has to say. I hope that the volume, uh, can, can we make sure that the volume is good enough for people to get? It is a revolution based on this observation. While big data spews out countless terabytes of impersonal data in an attempt to predict future directions of businesses and brands, it is the uniquely human small data right in front of us that reveals all the real truth and insights. Where is all this leading you ask? Well, the smallest clue can reveal unexpected insight for a brand or business with extraordinary results. Now, a worn-out sneaker found in the home of an 11-year-old German boy led Lego to one of the biggest brand turnarounds in history. Or how a fridge magnet in Siberia triggered the transformation of a large well-known US supermarket chain. And let's do this. The way people entered a church outside Rome, they decided to get the past back on track. Nice. Now there's a Sydney, the Sydney Uni University, that is the second best uh, university in Sydney. <laughs> there's actually a research center now uh, on health issues, doing exactly this what we do at the Constitution. The Constitution is also employing small data, but just like like there thinking we believe the same thing that we can we can only reveal kind of a part of the story by relying on the conventional research of big data. We need much more um, different information like this. This is what the big data looks like from your point of view. Okay? So if you look at this picture you realize immediately that there's one of those students sitting on the floor it's a little bit a little bit more mature than the others. Um, do you recognize this guy over here? Yeah it's a former minister you know this this, this is how he used to work as a minister, that he went into this situation. Without ever heard about small data, and I, I told him that when I was, I was with him, this is my photograph, and I said, Adrian, you have a very good example of 
somebody who really understands, you know, how the, how the, what the small data is all about and, and how to collect that. This is what he did systematically. He told me that he spends about 30% or spent about 30% of his time as a minister uh, you know, trying to make sense out of the, what's happening in the classroom. So if you're principal, this is, a, this is a good image, kind of an idea of what small data could look like rather than, you know, walking through the classrooms in your school and make sure that everything is all right there. Just go there and, you know, try to understand what the kids and uh, your teachers are doing. Look at these tiny little clues in the room and why, why it's arranged this way. You know, why the, the things are on the wall in a particular order. Or why the kids are sitting, you know, what is the basic purpose of this? The small data can, can be there. So, this is, what this, this is really the power of small data. So let's get back to this question that I had earlier, that why so many kids don't like mathematics. And I'm gonna close, this is my last thing over here, and I realize that I'm running a little bit late, am I? Do you want to talk about it a little bit? <laughs> because it may be people that there's not, not much time for your questions here, but I'm gonna see all of you, right? And we have much more time in the, in the workshop, so we can start both of these workshops with your reactions and questions. So if I take these uh, three, can I four minutes? Okay, so, um, you know, I, I used to be, as I said, I used to be a math teacher, as I told you. And, you, you know, this is this was my my experience in the school, that, you know, what um, what is going on in my class? Um, and then I, I learned that, you know, many of my colleagues had the same experience. So there are always kids who are, really fans of mathematics. That time, and this happened in the, in the early 1990s, in very early 1990s actually, when I was teaching in Helsinki, one of the schools. I met a university math education professor from England, and we just by accident happened to have a conversation about these things. And he said to me that, you know, my research field is students' beliefs about mathematical concepts and ideas. You know, these things that you heard from Brianne this morning. I said, okay, I found this conversation really great. I told him that I had this problem of having these kids and I had no idea what to do. That I had tried everything. You know, kids longer and harder and give more homework and even, you know, threaten them with the punishment that if you don't learn to love mathematics, bad things gonna follow. <laughs> Nothing helped, okay? And then we, you know, he said to me something that said, but do you, do you know what the kids, you know, what, what type of ideas they have about mathematics? I, said, I never thought about it, but probably something very bad because they don't like it. So we came, came across the, uh, uh, kind of a, the, the designed this tiny little research thing for my own class that I did for the first time, and it changed my whole life. The way I see teaching and learning and mathematics and many other things. And it was a, so simple that people don't even think about it. So I went to my classroom, and I had hand pieces of paper for everybody. I said, put your books and everything away. I'm gonna give you 15 minutes now. Uh, with this blank sheet of paper, draw an image of a mathematician at work. And this was the advice from my colleague. And he said, you know, if you can kind of understand what kids think when they think about a mathematician, that may help you to understand what their concepts, conceptions and beliefs and ideas about mathematics are. Brilliant idea. That's exactly what I did. I collected the sheets. Everybody, you know, all these kids were working very actively, particularly those who had very bad opinions about mathematics. I collected the sheets of paper. I went to the teacher's lounge during the break. 
and I laid them out, spread them out in front of me, and I was in shock. Okay? I said, maybe these kids had a bad day. So I took another class, exactly the same thing. I called my friend in England, and we did the same things in England and the United States and Sweden and many, many other countries, and with thousands of points, same thing everywhere. Do you know what was the first kind of a first common thing in almost every country, every classroom, when kids were drawing an image of a mathematician in court? Exactly. Okay. It's almost like definition that a mathematician is always a male. Okay? And you know, this, this was one of those first things that really uh, hit me as a teacher. And just to show you the idea, you know, this is one of this is a real original image uh, drawn by a 12-year-old within this 15 minutes of you know thinking about what a mathematician at work looks like. And remember, we asked the question was a mathematician at work. Okay, so this is this is how active mathematicians are. Okay, so it's always a male, and but you, you just look at the, the image. Okay, and I was a young man. Now I look a little bit like this, but you know that time I was really a young man, nice shoes, and you know all those things. But this is this is a very common way that young kids see when they close their eyes an image, try to imagine something when they see things like this. Okay, for those who don't see this, just to make. Uh, some clarification. This is a food stain here, okay? <laughs> because you know they, the mathematicians they're thinking about mathematics while they eat, so the food is going all over, all, all over the place. There's a mathematical formula here in the arm because they think about math all the time. Uh, and, and look at these pencils over there. The pants are too short. There's a hole here, uh, unshaped, tight eyes, and so on. Okay. So the same person is a young man, just to make sure that his point is really delivered to the researchers like us. He wrote some other things here. He said that they're usually fat male, not just male, but they're fat male. They are un unstylish. And they have no friends, <laughs> except other mathematicians. And they have no romantic relationships. Okay? And this came through in many, many places. Um, they have wrinkles in their foreheads because they think so hard. And they have very, very short tenders. Now, just imagine that you have kids like this in your classroom who see mathematics and, and mathematicians like this, it doesn't matter what you do as a teacher, but they will not do it, because they don't want to become, they are afraid that they, they're going to become something like this, okay? And that's, by the way, one reason why I think that it's, uh, we have much less girls really interested in mathematics. There's no other reason than this, the, the kind of beliefs and ideas that they, the kids bring with them when they go to a classroom. Now, my last question here is, what do you think I did? After really understanding this, and this is the, this is a good example of a small dash. This is not big dash. I can never show you this. What would you do as a teacher? What would you do? What do you think I did? Yeah, you know, I brought a female mathematician to my classroom to talk to my students. I just show them that you know you can be stylish, uh, male or female, and you know the reactions were. Interesting, because there were some people always who said, but you're a woman, how can you be a mathematician? And you know, all these stories that we've heard from these people were amazing. So that's, um, th that's my best personal story about the power of, um, uh, of small data. So let me close here and just give you three things. If you're still kind of wondering, that, so what is this all about? 
Okay? So small data needs to be part of part of the teachers and leaders' work. The first thing you really need to do is to, to pay more attention to, to in order to understand what the small data is. It's not just a technical thing, it's not just something that you can learn to use, it's a mindset. It's something that is requires a very different broader understanding about knowledge and evidence and data than just the big data, for example. Create cultures of small data. Okay? We heard earlier this morning about trust and collaboration. You know, if you really want to install the small data culture in your school, you have to you have to make sure that you have time for people to have these narratives and, 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 and collective conversations. You have to make sure that their people trust you and you trust your people there in the school. Otherwise, you don't see these things. Um, and finally, if you don't lead with the small data, then somebody will leave you with big data. And that's going to be the issue in my workshop. Thank you very much. I'm sorry for taking the time.